together. Father, it's a a privilege to be here this morning in your house, a privilege to worship you through music, also to open up your word, to study and learn and grow uh, closer to you. We praise you for your goodness and your grace. We praise you for your creation, for your giving this little baby a new life and Um, Just thankful for all of the gifts that we experience from you, and we pray that our response to your goodnesses and your graces would be that of humility, would be that of joy, would be that of comfort and confidence and boldness, that we would respond to you um, well and that it would be through our response to you that you are glorified. We pray your blessing upon this time that we will spend reading and studying your word, that it would be impactful, that it would change us, mold us into the image of Christ, and make us uh, servants and sons that would do your work and your labor here on this earth. Please be with this time, Lord, and may it glorify you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. Please be seated. Uh, well, I'd like to invite you just to turn your Bibles just a few, uh, few pages to your right, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and we're right in the middle of our study. This is our fifth, this will be the fifth sermon that we're dealing with with the doctrine of the resurrection from 1 Corinthians 15, and the total uh, sermons is nine. So this is the right smack in the middle, and we're right smack in the middle of the text as well. So we're on a good pace, and, um, and hopefully, Lord willing, we'll get through the book or the chapter by the end of uh, November. It's really weird to say that, isn't it? Tomorrow is November 1st. And we are literally like one and a half months away from Christmas, less than a half, and like exuding fear into everyone's heart right now. (laughs) We're close to Christmas and close to Thanksgiving and close to 2022. And it's crazy, isn't it? It's really just kind of going by, all right? And we're all hopeful about eternity, right? <laughs> Amen. So I can leeway into the sermon through uh, where we're all looking forward to eternal things, and that, that gives us a hope as this life screams by us fast and furious. Um, in, the middle of this, in the middle of this study, the Apostle Paul, uh, he doesn't deviate, but he stops. It's interesting because the, the middle of his study and the very end of his study, he he gives some uh, forceful commands, and he, he gives us some things that are, that are directly connected to or impacted by a, a, um, perhaps a waning faith in eternity. So if, if, if your faith in eternal things is starting to, to lessen or you're starting to doubt eternal things, whether it be the resurrection um, physically or just be eternal things as a whole, um, the the Apostle Paul in the middle and the end is going to press some issues home for us to get us to, to know that these aren't, this is not just a theological study for us to understand that we're going to resurrect one day, okay? And, and it is that because most of the chapter is a didactic teaching. It's, it's just Paul telling people about what the resurrection is about and proving it. He wants us to know that we will resurrect from the grave, Okay? But he wants us to know it for a reason that is in this life. So there's a reason why he's, he's pressing them, really, really challenging them on there is a resurrection. You are going to resurrect. And using all of the means at, at Paul's disposal to prove to us, to us that reality, he's not doing it necessarily for the benefit of eternity but he's doing it so that we would have a different focus in the now. And and how we function in life would be changed based upon the fact that we have a proper perspective of where, where, uh, where eternity goes or where we go for eternity. 
So that's where we're at right now. We're in that middle section where the Apostle Paul is going to provide some um, imperatives, some instructions, some, some commands on us that relate directly to how we should act if we have the proper appreciation for eternal things. How should it impact us? And it really only has, it really has one, um, one path, really, that he deals with in this chapter, and we're going to get to that this morning. The, the title of this morning's message, if you're a note taker, is From Subtle Doubt to Shameful Decline. From Subtle Doubt to Shameful Decline. Often things of a critical or highly rewarding nature lead a person to make great sacrifice, including but often not limited to the giving up of their own lives. Athletes are trained and taught to make sacrifices because they believe and pursue a reward. And we read already at the end of Romans 9 that they pursue a perishable reward or a perishable wreath or a perishable crown, but we are pursuing an imperishable crown or an eternal crown. So athletes are taught to make sacrifices on the basis of the fact that they believe that there's a reward. They believe that there is a wreath, there is a medal um, that they're going to get at the end. And, and, and the athlete is taught to keep their focus and their eyes on that medal. And every day when they go out to, to train and to be trialed and uh, go through trials and testings to see where they're at with their physical abilities, they do it with the mindset of that, that gold medal is always constantly driving them. You, you, you've seen the... You've seen the picture of the, of the carrot being dangled out in front of somebody, right? And, and you've ever seen that picture before? And the idea of it, and I think they even have some today where they have it attached to your head and it's just kind of dangling there and you're, you're constantly pursuing that or the rabbit is constantly pursuing or chasing after that carrot. And so the principle of an athlete is, is that they, the, the coach will dangle out in front of them a reward, or reward, or whatever, and they will chase that with the, with, the, with the expectation of one day attaining to it. Not only are athletes taught this, or driven to sacrifice based upon a reward, but first responders, they're taught to sacrifice believing that a situation is critical. A, a fireman is taught to run into a fire, because if he doesn't run into a fire, there's going to be people who are going to lose their lives. Policemen are fought to run into a situation where there are guns being shot back and forth and they put their lives on the line because they believe that the situation is critical enough that it needs their intervention. Physicians will go into a situation where there is a contagion, where there is a disease that could possibly impact them, but they go into the situation knowing and believing that the situation is critical enough that without their intervention, lots of bad things are going to happen. Few things are more shameful, few things are more shameful than a fireman who is unwilling to go into the fire. Few things are more shameful than a physician who is unwilling to treat a patient. Few things are more shameful than a policeman who is unwilling to face a criminal. Few things, and we, and we can think about it, we can picture it in our mind if there's a fire that's taking place and people are at risk and a fireman just simply stands back and says, I'm not going to go into that situation for whatever reason might be, he might give, that would be an act of, that would be a very shameful act for him to do because he's been trained and taught and prepared and equipped and called to go into that fire and rescue those people. The same goes for a fireman, a, a police officer, and the same goes for a physician. Imagine if, a, if somebody came into the hospital wanting to be treated and the physician says, well, they're just too sick. Well, what would we say about that physician? Good physician, bad physician. Bad physician, because the issue is, is that they know going into the situation, they know in their training that they're taught that, every, that they're going to be doing things that are risky, right? They're going to be doing dangerous things. That's a, a part of their training. That's why they're trained to do these things. So few things are more shameful than a fireman unwilling to go into a fire, a physician unwilling to treat a patient, and a policeman unwilling to face a criminal. However, there is one act that is more shameful than all of these acts combined. 
There's one act that is more shameful than all of these acts combined because it is so critical and so rewarding. It is so critical and so rewarding. And that is for someone not to share the gospel with others. The subtle doubt about eternal things leads us to a shameful decline in gospel boldness. You see, when you go back to the scenario of the fireman, if the fireman decides, if the fireman's, if the fireman's belief that the situation is critical begins to decline, then the fireman's energy and effort to go ahead and help in that fire will also decline. If a policeman's belief that the situation is critical begins to decline, the policeman's willingness to go into the situation will also decline. If an athlete begins to decline in his, in his belief that he's going to ever win the reward, if his belief in winning the reward begins to decline, his energy and effort to win the reward is going to also begin to decline. What the Apostle Paul is dealing with here in this passage of Scripture is there is a, a with the decline with the subtle decline or the subtle doubt that, that comes into our life about eternal things also comes a shameful decline in gospel boldness. It, we don't evangelize like we used to evangelize anymore. We don't see that lost soul the way that we used to see that lost soul before. We don't see the danger of the situation like we used to see the danger of the situation. We don't see the critical nature of where people are at and where eternity is at because we have lost, just like the Corinthians, we have lost a perspective that is an eternal perspective. And it's not just we've lost the perspective that is an eternal perspective on the consequences of eternity, but we've lost the perspective of the reward of eternity as well. The fact that we're going to be rewarded one day. This decline in gospel boldness is central to Paul's argument in 1 Corinthians 15. And that's why it's, that's why it's pressed at the, in the center of this passage of Scripture. It's put there for a reason because he wants us to think about now how does this practically look or how does this practically work out in the end. Subtle doubt about eternal things such as consequences and rewards creep in, leading to shameful decline in gospel boldness. Let's read our text here, and we'll see this unfold here in our passage. And then we'll unfold the text with some truths to, Lord willing, take home with us. Let me, let me just say this as an introduction. This is, hard, this is hard for all of us. We're not a gospel-oriented, evangelistic-oriented people anymore. I just think we have to take a step back and be honest with ourselves. We're not, out, we're not out sharing the gospel as we ought to. I think every one of us needs to probably take some responsibility for the fact that we're not sharing the gospel as we ought to. Um, maybe you are. Maybe you don't come across somebody that you don't give a tract to. My dad is that way. He, he doesn't come across someone that he doesn't give a gospel tract to. Everywhere he goes, he's just giving gospel tracts to people. And he doesn't. He he, he interacts with some, but he's he's just a powerful tract giver. But but I mean I, I I don't know. Maybe I'm maybe I'm way off track. Maybe I'm just speaking for myself when I say that I don't witness as much as I ought to. I don't share the gospel. This is a this is a challenging passage of scripture. This is a pressing passage of scripture. And the problem the problem that that Paul is pressing is not to. For the, apostles, for the Corinthian people to change their actions, he's pressing for them to change their beliefs because the issue isn't your actions. It's not that you're not sharing the gospel enough. It's that you're not taking eternity serious enough. Because when eternity is, taking, is taken seriously, then gospel preaching will be taken seriously. Then witnessing to that person that you come across, knowing that they may not have another day on the earth becomes serious knowing that they're going to wake up in a place called heaven or in a place called hell after they die and, take, and taking that seriously. Let's read our text and we'll unfold a few things. In verse 29 it says, Otherwise, 
What do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people being baptized on their behalf? Why are we in danger every hour? I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord. I die daily. And you see with these three, these three phrases here, simply put, three situations or three circumstances. You have the first group is baptized on the behalf of the dead. The second group are they're put in danger on behalf of the dead every hour. And my belief is, is the dead are, are unbelievers. They're unsaved people. They're lost people. They're dead in their trespasses and sins, as Ephesians 2 tells us. They're on their way to eternal condemnation and damnation. And Paul says this, why, if there is no resurrection from the dead, why are people being baptized on behalf of those dead people, lost people? Why are people in danger every hour for those same lost people? And why do I die daily for those lost people? Why is all this going on if there is no eternity? He says in verse 32, What do I gain, humanly speaking? I fought with beasts at Ephesus. If the dead are not raised. And the emphasis here is not, the Apostle Paul was not put in the, in the um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? What's that? He was not put in the Colosseum to fight with literal beasts. The issue, if you go to read Acts chapter 19, when the Apostle Paul was in Ephesus, there was a great outburst of, of conflict or, or people were, were rising up against the Apostle Paul. And what he's saying is, is that, why, do, why did I fight with those people? Why did I argue with those people? Why did I debate with those people? Why did I let those people bring this condemnation on me if there is no resurrection from the dead? In other words, the gospel doesn't mean anything if there isn't any resurrection from the dead. But listen to me. If there is resurrection from the dead, the gospel means everything. He goes on to say, What do I gain, humanly speaking? I fought with beasts at Ephesus if the dead are not raised. Let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Do not be deceived, or do not continue to be deceived. Bad company will ruin good morals. Or bad company will ruin good beliefs. Bad influences will ruin good doctrine. Bad influence will ruin good doctrine. You stay around the wrong influences long enough that are teaching you bad doctrine, or not maybe teaching you bad doctrine, but influencing you with bad doctrine, you will begin to adopt that bad doctrine. A preacher once said about things on the television, he said, the problem with the television and the television shows that are on it is not always that there's sex and, and, and drugs and, and murder and, 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 and all of those things. The problem is, is that they present life without God as being normal. And they don't only present life without God as being normal, but you don't see them presenting eternal life as being normal. So the longer, then that's what the Apostle Paul is dealing with, the longer you're around these influences, the, the more you're going to begin to adopt their beliefs, probably subconsciously, which will ultimately lead to you being like, hey, I don't need to witness to anybody. What's interesting here is that the, their actions of not, so it's like, because most of us would say we believe in the resurrection, right? And we would probably all shake our heads right now while I'm preaching. So I can, we would all say that we believe in the resurrection. Here's what the Apostle Paul is saying. Your, your actions are greater evidence than your words. Your actions, are you a gospel soul-winning person, because that's what proves you believe in the resurrection. Because we all, we all say that we believe in the resurrection. We all say that we believe in eternal damnation and eternal uh, glory. We say we believe in those things, but here is evidence of it. Here is proof of it. He goes on to say in, the, in our text, do not be deceived, bad company ruins good morals. Wake up from your drunken stupor, as is right, And do not go on sinning. For some do not have the knowledge of God. And he says, I say this to your shame. 
Some do not know who, the, the, the idea here in the, the term is just the idea of ignorant. Some people are ignorant of who God is. They're ignorant of eternity, they're ignorant of God's justice, they're ignorant of God's love, they're ignorant of God's grace. Some people are ignorant of the things of God. They're ignorant of the person of God, they're ignorant of the grace of God, they're ignorant of the sacrifice of God, they're ignorant of all of these things, and the devil has convinced us that no one's ignorant of these things, hasn't he? Paul says here, some people are ignorant of God. Or maybe they're not just ignorant of God. Maybe they're confused about who the true biblical God is. And who does the Apostle Paul lay on? Whose account does the Apostle Paul lay that on? Whose account does the Apostle Paul lay their ignorance on? On the church. It's literally, you go back to the book of Ezekiel, it talks about the watchman on the wall. The Bible says that God has given a watchman to watch out, and when he sees the enemy coming, he says if he will proclaim that the enemy is coming, and the enemy comes in and people don't listen to his proclamation, the enemy comes in and they destroy the people, whose blood are, the, whose blood are those people, whose, whose hands are those people's blood planted or placed? It's on their own, their own responsibility, because the watchman on the wall cried out and said the enemy is coming, and the people refused to listen, and the enemy came in and, 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 and wiped them all out, right? It's on, their own, it's on their own hands. However, Ezekiel says this, if you are called to be a watchman on the wall, and you see the enemy coming, and you don't cry out, and the enemy comes in and wipes out all the people, then whose hands is their blood on? Whose hands? They're on our hands. They're on the church's hands. This is what the Apostle Paul is saying. I speak this to your shame because people don't know the gospel. They don't know who God is. They don't know about God. They don't know his nature or his character because nobody has told them. Nobody has shown them the truth. Nobody has walked them, discipled them, taught them what the truth is. And he says, I speak this to your shame this word shame is important because I believe it really presses home for us the strong emphasis the Apostle Paul is making on evangelism. The word is given to us twice in this, in this book, 1 Corinthians 15 where we're at, and also 1 Corinthians 6. In 1 Corinthians 6, there were people who were taking legal actions to the world and they were letting the world judge on these legal actions instead of going to the church where they said that was where true wisdom was. So the world was making judgment on churches on the church issues and not the church making it, making determinations on the church issues. And here's what the Paul here's what Paul says, that's shameful. What should be happening is not happening and that's a shameful thing. And he uses the same word here because what should be happening is not happening. People who believe in eternal things is not, the witness of those people is not happening, and that is a shameful thing. Our situation is critical. Our situation is critical. The situation of lost people is critical. And the reward that God promises to those who do what he calls them to do is great that it is shameful that we not do what we're called to do when it comes to evangelism. The only way for us to be restored from this is to have, to be, to have an eternal focus restored. We must begin to think eternally again. We must begin to set our minds, the Apostle Paul says, set your mind on things above in Colossians, not on things of the earth. We have to begin to think with an eternal mindset and not with an earthly mindset. And when we get that, then we'll begin to become evangelists again. We'll begin to evangelize our neighbors. We'll begin to evangelize our friends. We'll begin to think of evangelism as being the most important thing that's one of the most important aspects of any relationship that we have. I wonder how many of us in here have even close friends that we're really close to that we know are not believers and we've never pressed them on the issue of the gospel. 
Where are we going to be on that day when we stand before God and that individual that quote-unquote we've been friends with our whole life is cast into eternal damnation? It's something to really think about, to really consider, because that's what Paul is pressing here. If you believe in the resurrection, if you believe that these people are going to live eternally somewhere, the gospel ought to be a huge part of your, of your life and of your world. Let me give you a few thoughts here before we get into this, the breaking down of the text. First of all, eternity is critical because unbelievers are going to face a holy God on judgment day. Unbelievers are going to face a holy and just God, a God who is righteous in every way, a God who will allow zero sins to ever go unjudged. There will never be a sin that has been committed on the face of the earth that will not go completely and fully judged by a righteous and holy God. Either the individual will face that judgment or Jesus face that judgment, but every sin will face judgment. And every unbeliever will stand before that just and holy God and they will give an account for every single one of their sins. Every thought, every intention, every motive, everything they will give an account to God for. Everything, every word, every casual word, everything they will give an account for on judgment day. Hebrews 9 and verse 27, the Bible says, It's appointed unto men once to die, and after this comes the judgment. Romans 6.23 says the wages of sin is death. And that's not talking about just physical death. It's talking about eternal condemnation. Hebrews 10.31 says this, It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. And 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 11 says this, Knowing, therefore, the terror of the Lord, knowing, therefore, the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. Knowing the terror of the Lord, knowing the justice of God, knowing the wrath of Almighty God, knowing his anger towards sin, looking back in the Old Testament and the New Testament and Revelation and and seeing God's wrath being poured out on mankind for its sinfulness, knowing those things as a reality, what do we do? We live comfortably, we eat, drink, and be married, for tomorrow we die, or we become evangelists. Maybe the problem is we don't know the terror of the Lord and therefore we don't, we don't persuade men. It's critical because unbelievers are going to face God on judgment day. It's rewarding because believers are going to be rewarded for every work that they accomplished on the Lord's behalf. Especially those things that we've done in the gospel. The gospel is like Matthew 6, 19 and 20, laying up for yourselves treasures in heaven. You have an opportunity to commit your life to laying up for yourselves treasures on earth through many different avenues where moth and rust corrupts and where thieves break through and steal. Or you have an opportunity to commit your life to giving it over to the work of God, which is most uh, clearly laid out in the gospel, and laying up for yourselves treasures in heaven. The Bible tells us in 1 Corinthians 3 that all of our works are going to be cast into the fire and some of them are going to be wood, hay, and stubble and nothing's going to come out and we're going to go to heaven but yet we're going to go yet so asked by fire and some of those are going to be gold, silver, and precious stones and they're going to come out and they're going to be a great crown that's going to come out of that fire. What do you think the gold, silver, and precious stones are? Do you think he's going to look at your bank account on judgment day? He that winneth souls is wise, the Bible says. That's laying up for yourselves treasures, and they're going, we're, going to, and we're not going to be judged for our sins. As children of God, we are, we are completely forgiven. Jesus Christ placed, faced all of God's judgment for us. But there's a sense of reward or lack of reward or loss of reward that is going to take place in heaven. Paul tells Timothy that some will get to heaven and they will be ashamed 
Why? Because the person in front of them is wearing this huge crown and they don't have anything. And in the end, all of those crowns are not going to be about the individual. They're going to be about the Christ because we're going to take those crowns. Imagine being in heaven and you're being able to give something back to Jesus for all that he did for you. And the one guy walks up and he has nothing to offer Jesus because he did nothing for Jesus. The grace grace of God accomplished nothing through him except that he was saved. And then somebody else, like the Apostle Paul, who spent his life, committed his life, gave his life for the sake of the gospel, and he's right there behind you, and he walks up with this huge crown on his head, and he takes it off, and he gives it to Jesus. Imagine the shame of that moment. It will not be condemnation, but there will be shame there. And what's it about? It's about... It's about committing our life to Jesus and committing our life to the gospel. I don't really know the answer. I don't know why we have become such a non-evangelistic culture and why the church has become so comfortable within our four walls but has has no confidence or no comfort level to tell somebody outside of these walls what Jesus is like and to call them to a decision of repentance and faith. I don't know why we have fallen down that road. I, I, I can say this, the devil is a, a subtle enemy who will convince us of things that are not true, but we are in that boat, folks. We are there. We just float through life each day. And I don't know, I don't know about you, but maybe, maybe you can think back to the last time that you stopped and you talked to somebody and you clearly presented the gospel to them with the expectation of, of pressing them to a decision about Jesus. But I, I, would not be, I would not be surprised that many of us couldn't think about when we last did that. Why? Because we've lost sight of eternity. We've lost sight of the consequences of eternity. We've lost sight of the condemnation of eternity. We've lost sight of the fact that men are going to give an account before a just and holy God, and at the very least we can do is tell them that. And we've also lost sight of the fact that there's a huge reward. Listen, you'll never give your life for Jesus and not have it restored back a hundredfold in this life and in the next life. That's what the Bible teaches. And I would say this to you. I believe that the hundredfold, when Luke tells us that, the hundredfold in this life and the next life, I believe that he means this. The hundredfold in this life is the church. It is that you have been given the church. It's a hundredfold of what you had before. A hundredfold of friends. A hundredfold of companions and compadres. A hundredfold of people who are working with you in the battle. In this life and in the next, it's heaven. Maybe we as a church need to be thinking about dedicating ourselves to each other in such a way as to encourage evangelism so that we have that hundredfold, that reward back. We need to focus on consequences and rewards of, of eternity so that, we can, so that we can be proper evangelists. I want to give you seven things. I'm going to walk through them uh, fairly quickly. If you're taking notes, they, they will be helpful to have. This is evangelism for us in a nutshell. Seven things about evangelism for us in a nutshell. And I, I just want to um, provide them to you and encourage you to think about them. In verse 29, it says, Otherwise, why do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead if the dead are not raised at all? And just note this. this is, there's lots of... Um, there's lots of uh, interpretations of this. Matter of fact, one scholar said 40 plus interpretations of this verse of Scripture. John MacArthur said this is the hardest verse in all of Scripture to interpret. So it's not an easy verse to interpret. What I'm going to tell you is this. My opinion of this verse is that it means one of two things. Either the Apostle Paul is saying when people are baptized that they are a witness. Remember, the bat- baptism is a witness. When they're baptized physically, that they're giving a witness to lost people of what the gospel is. Or number two, which I believe this is probably the more accurate interpretation, is that the Bible doesn't just talk about baptism by water, but it talks about baptism by fire, which is trials and tribulations. Jesus has said to not only baptize us with the Holy Spirit, but to baptize us with fire, which is hardship. I believe that the interpretation would be that Christians were going through hardship for the sake of the lost. And the question is, is if there is no eternity, why go through hardship for the sake of the lost? 
Why face, why face persecution for the sake of the lost if we're just going to die and be done? He says, uh, why, are we in, why are we in danger every hour? I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord. I die daily. So you have these three different scenarios given to tell us one thing, and that is simply this. There is a price for evangelism. There is a price for evangelism. There is no evangelism in Scripture that I know of that doesn't come with a price. Every evangelistic outreach, every event in Scripture that we read about has a price, a a heavy and a high price associated with somebody preaching the gospel. The apostles experienced the ultimate price of giving their lives. Jesus died the ultimate uh, uh, death for giving out the message of the, the truth of the gospel. 2 Timothy 3.12 says, Indeed, all those who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. There are three things in this this, uh, price for evangelism that are mentioned. Number one is persecution. It's found in the fact that they were baptized for the lost. This is an interesting word in the Greek. It comes in the passive tense. It means that something is happening to the individual. They're being persecuted for the lost. People are, people are pressing them, maybe mocking them, maybe laughing at them. It would be very similar to what Noah did back in the days of, of the flood when he came out and he preached and people laughed at him and they, and they mocked him and they persecuted him and, and they, and they um, rejected him. That would be kind of the idea here that's taking place with the gospel. Why are people being allowing themselves to experience this type of persecution a baptism by fire, if the gospel doesn't really matter, if eternity doesn't really matter. Sharing the gospel is difficult, and not everybody's going to like you. My suggestion to you is this, that if you are one of those people that is fearful of persecution, fearful of rejection, fearful of mockery, fearful of being laughed at, you will probably not be a good evangelist. You'll probably not evangelize people. If you're afraid of losing your friends, you're probably not going to evangelize them. If you're afraid of that, that's the type of persecution that these people were putting themselves to. They were being baptized by fire for the sake of the gospel. They were willing to face persecution. They were willing to face laughter, mockery, all those things. They were willing to face those things because the gospel was more important. If if it's about eternal things, then we understand where their mindset was. If it's not about eternal things, then we understand why they would want to avoid all of those things. You You either save a friend in this life or you make a companion for eternity. Not only that, but he goes on to peril. Peril, and uh, the word danger is used here in the Bible, but it means peril. It's being put in dangerous situations. This is an active uh, tense of the verb. It means that he put himself constantly in dangerous situations. Putting themselves in situations of peril. And we know that that's true in the Bible days, because every time the Apostle Paul preached, he was going to be perhaps something bad was going to happen to him. Maybe he was afraid of being shut down in our culture today, maybe being shut down or being arrested or being harmed or some other type of danger that might come along with with preaching the gospel and that these people, what the Apostle Paul is saying is that's a part of it. You know, don't sign on the bottom line that you want to be a gospel-oriented person without knowing what the gospel demands of us, what it's going to require one who is afraid of danger, pain, being arrested or being harmed will possibly be hindered in their evangelistic outreach. The last one is death, possible death. There is persecution, there is peril, and possible death. This is a risk-taking person. The Apostle Paul says, I put my, I put my life on the line every day. When I, when I walk out of the house, I know that I might not return to the house and it's all for the sake of the gospel. And that's what he says over in, uh, back where we read this morning in 1 Corinthians 9. I, I, have, I, do, I do all of this, he says. I do all of this. I become like a Jew. And I do all of this for the sake of the gospel. 
Paul risked his life for the gospel. He put his life on the line every single day. One who fears death will often be hindered in their evangelism as well. One who fears death will often be hindered in their evangelism as well. These are three things that are, that are associated with evangelism as in regards to its price. There's a price for evangelism. It's going to cost us something. And it's going to often be painful. And, 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 and it, is, it, is, it is that it is these three types of things that the devil uses to keep us from evangelizing. It is the fear of being rejected. It is the fear of being in danger. And it is the fear of dying that keep us from evangelizing. These are three things that will keep you from doing God's work. Not only that, that's the persecution of evangelism. Number two is the persistence of evangelism. The persistence of evangelism. The Apostle Paul says this, every day and every hour, right? He says of the others, he says, why do, why do we put ourselves in danger every hour? And why do I put myself at risk of death every day? What is he, what is he saying is, is that the, the gospel work is a nonstop work. It is something that you're constantly doing every moment, every hour, and every day. You're constantly giving yourself to the gospel. Every situation that God puts you in and every circumstance that God puts you in in life is a divine appointment. It's not a divine appointment for any other reason than that you might be a gospel-oriented person, that I might be a gospel-oriented person. This is a call to be consistent and constant in our evangelism outreach. When an athlete knows that they're going to when an athlete is going out for the Olympics, right? The Olympic the Olympic team gives them a a a fund that they can draw out of, but they but they know this, if I don't commit my life to this award, I'm not going to get it, right? They give themselves totally over to it. Their eating regimen, their sleeping regimen, everything is associated with them getting that, their exercise regimen, everything is committed to them getting that reward, right? It's the same principle here. Every day and every hour you're on duty. It's like I I think of of, um, Dylan. I'm going to use you as an example, Dylan. I hope you forgive me. Your parents have shared a few things about your being on call at your work. And he's there, he works, uh, he's an EMT, right? You're an EMT. And he, he's on call constantly. He might have some time where he's resting, but if the phone comes in and there's a situation that needs his help, he is active. He's always ready and active to go into whatever situation and circumstance comes and he is ready to do the work that he's called to do. This is what God has called us to do to be constantly ready and active. The Lord says to be instant or to be ready in season and out of season. 1 Peter 3.15, the Lord says to always be ready to give a defense to anyone who asks you for the reason of the hope that is within you. And 2 Corinthians 6.2, the Apostle Paul says, it is a favorable, uh, in a favorable time I listened to you, and in the day of salvation I have helped you. Behold, now is a favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. It's a, it's, a, it's a persistence. It's a perseverance in the gospel. Number three is the participation in the gospel. You'll notice this. It's interesting. The Apostle Paul talks to four groups here. Number one is the they. Why are they being baptized on behalf of the gospel? So there's the they. There's this other group of people who are being baptized on behalf of the gospel. Then there's the we. He says, and why are we putting ourselves, this is not including the you, it's the we. Why are we putting ourselves in danger every hour? And why am I putting myself to death every hour? Who is missing in that scenario? Who does he not address as doing anything right now with the gospel? The yous. He's saying to them, they're doing the work, we're doing the work, I'm doing the work, but you're not doing the work. The gospel ministry is for every believer. 
It's not for some believers. It's not for trained believers. It's not for people who have gone to seminary or gone to college. It's for all believers. We're all called to be ministers of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Some were being baptized, and there's different levels of it. Some were being baptized for it. Some were putting their life in danger every hour, and some were giving their lives every day for the gospel. So there, there are ranges of sacrifice for the gospel, but the issue that Paul, that Paul is making by pointing out all of these other groups, imagine sitting there and the shame that you would experience if the apostle Paul says, hey, that church over there, they're being persecuted for the gospel. That church over there, they're, they're giving their lives for the gospel. That church over there is putting themselves in danger every hour for the gospel. But what are we doing for the gospel? That's what he's pressing here. That's what he's pointing out. It's interesting because he only uses the word us, which would include them when he says, let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. Because their attitudes have become so selfish and so now-oriented that they had no perspective of the future. So what does the Apostle Paul do? He points at other people. Other people are doing this. We should be doing it too. It's the participation in evangelism. We should be partaking in it. I, I, I wrote this down for those of you who are theologically minded this is a thing that we as doctrines of grace people can learn from Arminian people. It's that, it's that they believe that salvation is totally of things that you do. But they're out sharing it. We believe it's something that totally God does, and so we hide it in our chest and we keep it to ourselves. If God can do it, can he do it with anybody? Can he save? Is there anybody that's outside of his reach or beyond his power? You sow the seed on the ground, and God is the one that brings it to life, right? If you don't sow the seed on the ground, is there any seed to come to life? So if we believe that it's built on the power of God to bring a seed to life, then if we truly believe that, what are we going to do? We're going to throw the seed on the ground, and we're going to let God bring that seed to life. We can learn some things from other ministries, can't we? And other religions, even. Participation in evangelism, it's for all of us. The proof of evangelism, I believe, number four or five. The proof of evangelism is simply this. The Apostle Paul says, he says this, I protest, and Apostle Paul is putting forth a, 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 um, a protest against this belief that the gospel doesn't work because there is no eternity, and his protest is simply this, you are my protest. The fact that the people sitting there were saved, they had accepted Christ, they had believed the gospel, they had accepted eternity, and he says, you are a witness to the fact that the gospel is true. Most of us in here believe in eternity for ourselves, and that's the proof of the gospel, but do we believe in it for others? The prize of evangelism, the Apostle Paul says, what profit is it to me? It's important to note that there is, a, there is no profit if there is no eternity, but the opposite is also true. If there is no eternity, there is no profit to evangelism, but if there is eternity, then there is what? There's profit, right? How many of us invest in things that we hope will give us a profit or a return? Here's what the Apostle Paul is saying. If there is eternity, then your investment in eternal things will bring a return. But if there is no eternity, then your investment in eternal things will not bring a return. And here's the issue. Because they were not believing in eternity, they were not making investments. They weren't making investments. Their lack, their doubt, their subtle doubt of eternity led them to a shameful decline in investing. This is the prize of evangelism or the profit of evangelism. We read already in 1 Corinthians 9, I won't go back there, but 1 Corinthians 9, 23 through 27, Paul says, I became all things to all people that I might win some. You know what he says at the end of that? He says, run the race that you might win. 
What race is he talking about? If he just told them, I became all things to all people that I might win some, I've done all this that I might do it for the sake of the gospel, and then he says to them, run that you might win, don't beat against the air, discipline your body for the race. If he's saying all of these things, what is his motive? What is the reward? It's evangelism. That's the race. That's where we're running. That's the eternal race. It's, it's, it's how many people can I take with me? into this eternal heaven. Let's go on. The last two thoughts. Problems with evangelism. There are just simply three problems at the end of this. He says this. First of all, let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die is the first problem. This is an interesting phrase that's really used all throughout the book of 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians 9, the apostle Paul says, I have the right to eat and drink and if I don't want to make any sacrifices for the gospel, then I will eat and drink. 1 Corinthians 10 talks about eating and drinking into idolatry, eating and drinking undiscerning of the fact that this stuff is being offered to idols. 1 Corinthians 11 talks about eating and drinking at the Lord's table in an uncontrollable way. 1 Corinthians 11 talks about eating and drinking without discerning the Lord's body. All of these are saying, don't eat and drink without discerning the fact that there's an eternal nature to things. There's a purpose and a reason behind things. And he's not just pressing eating and drinking. He goes to the very basic of all things of life. Eating and drinking is the basics of life. And he says, don't do it without discernment. And not discernment of things that are dealing with now, but a discernment about the fact that we are living for an eternity. Don't stuff your mouth full of food not realizing that there's an eternal thing going on and not just a now thing going on. That's what he's dealing with. When 1 Corinthians 11, they were just literally, the Lord's Supper became this like gorging thing. He says, stop it. Do you not discern the Lord's body in this? Do you not discern the eternal nature of this? The problem is, is that we go through life doing things without discerning the fact that there is an eternal nature to them. And he's literally making a jab at them in this moment saying, here's all these other people that are sacrificing for the gospel, and here's you who are saying, let's eat and drink for tomorrow we die. I mean, it is a sarcastic jab that the Apostle Paul is making at this group of people, and he's not holding back because it's serious. Evangelism is serious to the Apostle Paul, and when the church stops evangelizing, then there's no one to evangelize. The first problem is simply that they were living life as if, as if life didn't matter to eternal things. The Apostle, not the Apostle, the, the, um, Matthew, the, uh, in, in the Gospel of Matthew, he says about the last days, in the last days, people will be eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage. And then he says the flood, the windows of heaven will open and the flood will come. Just like in the days of Noah. It's where we're at. It's where we're at and we got to get, get away from that. We've got to get an eternal mindset. So he says the first struggle is, is just living life without discernment. The second one is living life without any eternal stability. He refers to them as being drunken. Just like literally staggering through life without any, without any stability. It's being blown here and there with every, with every conversation, with every wind of doctrine, with everything that's going on in the world today. It's being blown. It's being tossed back and forth between this political situation and this political situation and this medical situation. And, this, and we're just tossed everywhere. And what have we lost sight of? You know, I've heard more talk in the last year, I mean, I'm honest with you, more talk in the last year about COVID, about political things, probably by a hundredfold than I have about eternal things. And you know what? It's not from the world. It's from us. We've lost sight. We've lost vision of eternity. We're all going to die your timeline that God has set for you is a really big timeline. And one of the things in there is your death. But it's not the end of your timeline. 
It's just a part of your timeline. Living without any stability, constantly being led astray. He, he says that by a stop being deceived. He says, stop being deceived. And that word means led astray. He's like, stop being led astray. Ephesians 4 and 14 says, So that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. You're just led away from the things of God. And then, uh, and then he says, life, the, the, the third problem, life without discernment, life without stability, and then life without purpose. And we see this at the end here. Um, at the end of this, he says, wake up from your stump, uh, uh, drunken stupor as is right and do not go on sinning. And again, this one goes along with also staggering through life like a drunk. The other one was more associated with um, the idea of not being deceived or not being led astray. And then lastly this morning, the power of evangelism. He gives them three, three commands he says this, and this is what I just want to encourage you with in closing. First of all, he says, bad company corrupts good doctrine. Okay? So we don't need to, we don't need to go into great detail on that. What we know is simply this. Make sure that your companions that you are hanging out with and associating with and giving your life and your focus to are biblical people. They're not going to lead you away from the truths of eternity. They're going to lead you into them. If you find yourself being around a certain person all the time and all you can think about is the here and now and you're engrossed in the carnal world and you're engrossed in this moment and you cannot think about eternal things, then find a different friend. That's what he says here. Bad company will destroy good doctrine. And good doctrine that is destroyed or doubted will ultimately lead to shameful decline in your service to God. Bad company corrupts good morals, so change your friends. Proverbs 13 and verse 20 says this, Whoever walks with the wise becomes, and whoever is a companion of fools will suffer harm. We teach this to our children, right? You have bad friends, they're going to lead you astray. You put a bad apple into a, a, a bag of good apples, the good apple doesn't change the bad apple to being good. It, the bad apple makes all the, bad, all the good apples bad, right? That's what we teach our kids. Maybe we should take some of that lesson. Change your companions. Number two, change your convictions. And I would just say this, maybe have some convictions. Have some convictions. Stabilize yourself in some way that you know what you believe. So you're not tossed here and there with everything that's going on. He says to wake up from your drunken, from your drunken stupor, and he says, do what is right. It's like on one end of the spectrum, you do what feels good, and that's getting drunk. drunk drunkenness feels good. He says, wake up from your drunken stupor and do what is right. Listen to me. You will not be a good evangelist if you're built on how things feel. You must be built upon what is right. What is the right thing for me to do in this situation? And that must become the conviction of your heart. A conviction is not something that's just external. It is deep-rooted inside of you. Romans 13, 11, the Apostle Paul says, Besides this, you know, that you know the time that the hour has come for you to wake up for your, from your sleep, for your salvation is nearer now than when you first believed. Change your conviction, and then lastly, change your conversation. He says this, conversation is another word for lifestyle. And when we think of conversation, we think of like interaction verbally. Conversation means lifestyle. Here's what he's saying. He says at the end of this, stop sinning. Stop sinning. 
The whole book of the whole book of 1 Corinthians is written about a group of people who live completely selfish in every way. And what wane at the end of the book, what wanes when a church becomes or when a when a community of believers become completely selfish? What declines? What declines? What are we talking about here? Evangelism. Why? Because we can't think about anybody but ourselves. What he says is, stop. Stop sinning. And I just wrote this down. Change is necessary if we are going to be the evangelist that God wants us to be. And I would submit to you that the acknowledgement that change is necessary is super important. If you don't think change is necessary, you won't make it. And remember this, it's not the change of your actions, it's the change in your beliefs. What's on the line here is that you don't believe in eternal things. I don't believe in eternal things enough to share the gospel with somebody who is an eternal soul. We must not be focused on external changes, but internal changes that only God can produce through his word, through the sowing of seed. I want to share this story with you, and I'm going to close. One of the most heroic acts that I've ever experienced was several years ago, probably um, time passes me so much now, uh, eight years ago, I would say, I was a volunteer fireman in Nebraska, and I remember getting a, a call one day to a house, and we were called to a house where there was a gentleman in the house, a very large man, who was confined to a wheelchair, and he was a, a smoking man, and he was a oxygen-using man. If you know the idea of the oxygen in the nose. And he was smoking in his chair, and he, and he dropped his cigarette, and it lit his chair on fire. And he, he was in his wheelchair, and his chair was burning, and he had no way of moving. He couldn't move. He was paralyzed to his chair. He couldn't get the oxygen out of his mouth or his nose. And I remember it specifically because we got the call, and it was an address that we all recognized. We, we recognized this address because it was um, a father of one of our men who was, on our, who was on the team with us, one of our fellow firemen. It was his dad. And he knew right away, and I remember... I remember I, literally this, this call was like two blocks from the church, and I was at the church. I was doing volunteer firemen just to kind of make a connection with the community. And I remember thinking maybe the best thing I can do is just go over there without going and getting all my equipment on and spending all that time. So I went over there to the house, and when I got there, what I experienced was just something that you'll never forget. His son, who was a fireman, just worked a few blocks away as well, and he made it, he didn't go get his equipment on, he made it directly to the fire. And when he got there, he ran right into the middle of this. I mean, everybody was saying, stop. Everybody was trying to restrain him from going into that fire. But he ran into the middle of that fire and he got his dad out of that chair and he carried him out by himself. And he suffered great, he suffered great injuries by doing that, got his dad out. His dad lived a few days and then passed away. But I remember thinking in my mind, it's what we should be like. As Christians, people are sitting in a paralyzed condition, paralyzed by the deceptions of Satan. The fire is all around them. They can do nothing. They can do nothing to get out. There's nothing that they can do but there's something that Christians can do. And what we can do is we can go into the fire. We can go into the danger. We can put our lives on the line every day for the sake of the gospel. Jude says it this way, and have compassion on those who doubt, but save others by snatching them up out of the fire. There are some that just simply need us to snatch them up. And by God's grace, let us overcome our fears. Let us overcome our anxieties. Let us overcome all of those things that keep us from going after those who are lost. And let us become the evangelist that God has called us to be.
Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the calling in our lives. Thank you for the salvation that you have provided for us. And the calling that comes along with it is a calling of self-sacrifice. It's a calling of denying self. A calling of taking up our cross. It's a calling of going into dangerous and difficult situations. It's a calling of being rejected and laughed at and mocked and criticized because we believe something that to a carnal mind seems somewhat foolish. But we know it is truth and we know that the world needs to hear it. And I pray, dear God, that you would give each one of us a passion for eternity, a passion, Lord God, for the consequences of, for those who do not have Christ and a reward for those who have Christ and share him with others. Please bless this message. Please use it, Lord God, in the hearts of those who are here. In Jesus Christ's name, amen. Thank you.